as we read a portion from Judges. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Amorites and the Amalekites, and went and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, eighteen years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab, and Ehud made himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man, and when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence, and all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat, and Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. <laughs> and the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came up. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, Follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I was talking with someone this uh, week about what passage I was going to be preaching on, and that person said, every elementary school age boy is going to think this is their favorite passage ever, <laughs> which fair enough. Um, before we continue to actually, so, so I think all of us will find when we understand what's going on, very encouraging, when we lead us in prayer. Um, Father, uh, 
even as we just encounter this passage, uh, we are reminded uh, that you are not a God who is just so far removed from us that you don't recognize or understand the, the very earthy details of life. You are one who has come near to us. And you speak to us and alert us to things that oftentimes we do not see. And so, Father, that's what we ask for this morning, that you would speak your word to us in such a way that we would see more clearly and be changed. And we pray this in Jesus' name. So why is it that sometimes, why is it that sometimes we recognize aspects of our life that we know are not good for us, and yet we don't change? I mean, maybe we have entered into a certain career with ambition, wanting to kind of make it all the way to the top. We, we aspire to success, but somewhere along the way we realize this is not good. I am not spending any time with my family. I'm getting exhausted and burnt out. And yet, we don't change. Why is that? Or it can be habits that we recognize. We can realize that when we're feeling low, we end up just kind of going online and buying something to try to make life feel more interesting. When we're tired, we end up binging in Netflix and wake up the next day even more exhausted. When we feel down, we kind of try to eat or drink our sorrows and just feel more ashamed on the other side. And we realize it. We realize it's not working. And yet, we don't change. Or, or maybe it is just this thing that we realize we want to do. We want to pray. We want to wake up in the morning, read scripture. We know it would be good for us. But every morning, the demands of email, the busyness of the morning, just the lack, honestly, of desire to pray makes it so that once again, another day goes by and we don't change. Why is it that sometimes, even when we know that a certain way of life isn't good, we don't change? I think that question actually is in some ways proposed to us, or at least implied in the very beginning of our passage. The very first word in the Hebrew of the passage that was just read is the simple, almost tedious word, again. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the if you were with us a few weeks ago, you might remember that Israel dug themselves into a hole. They turned to idols. They end up getting enslaved to this guy that was kind of nicknamed Mr. Dark Devil Wicked. Not a good guy. And, and so they were miserable. And what does God do? He responds to their cries. He brings Othniel. He rescues them out. Everything is good. And what do they do? And the people of Israel did evil again. How monotonous. How exhausting, how frustrating. Why? I mean, sometimes we can think of people who are like 2,000 years ago, more than that, actually 3,000 years ago, and just assume that somehow they lack intelligence, but of course that's not the case. You, you have to imagine that some people are doing the math and recognizing, you know, every time we do this, this doesn't go well for us. There's got to be some who recognize this is not a productive avenue, and yet it just keeps Happening. Why is it that sometimes when we recognize something is wrong, we do not change? Now, that's a question, of course, that is too complicated to just say, here's the single answer, right? There's anytime we have these repetitive patterns, there are things related to our bodies, there are things related to our, our, our ecosystem that surround us, things related to our desire. But I would suggest that at least one 
Key answer to this question is that sometimes we don't change because we feel like it's impossible. Sometimes we don't change because we feel like the, the things that resist us, the power that stands against us, is just too great. And so before we even begin, we already feel defeated. So yes, we should probably change our job, but we've spent so many years and so much time and so much education getting here. How are we supposed to change that? Yes, I have habits that are bad, but who am I fooling? Anything I try to do, you know, I'm just going to go back to the way it was a few weeks later. Yeah, I, I know, I really should be praying. It would be great for me to contemplate scripture, but have you looked at my schedule? Or do you know the kind of person I am? We just feel defeated. We've talked about how in some ways Judges is, is orienting us towards this deeper spiritual battle, and the truth is that one of Satan's greatest weapons is despair. One of his most powerful tools is to convince us that we are hopeless, that we are victims, that there is nothing we can do to change things. And I wonder if that is at least part of what was going on with the people of Israel. They would have these moments, these great moments of salvation where they would remember, they would see God. And, and for a time, they would have these intentions. Yes, I will do better. Yes, I will change. But here's the thing. The further they get away from that moment, the, the further God feels from them and less real he is. And the more real their problems feel. And as they look around and they see these other nations that are all really strong, they seem really profitable and really capable, it seems like they have gods that are stronger. And at a certain point, maybe it's at a moment of crisis. Maybe something terrible happens. Their kid is sick or their crops are failing. And they, they feel like prayer is doing nothing. They have nowhere else to turn. So they walk towards wherever that is, that idol is. And they say, please, could you help me? The forces are just so powerful it seems inevitable. And so it happens again. Israel again. There was evil on the side of the Lord. And what happens next seems to vindicate all of their feelings. Because what happens but a powerful, idol-worshipping nation just comes and just wipes them out, it seems. So, so enter, we, we now have our first character entering into the scene. Eglon, king of Moab. It's kind of interesting, actually, every single time, except for one, where whatever Eglon's name, it's like always with the title. It's like, you know, you, ne you never say Darth. It's Darth Vader. There's kind of like a certain, like, austerity to it. It's Eglon, king of Moab. You can almost hear the booming voice. And not only do we always have the title, but the name, Eglon, um, it means cow or young bull, which to us is like, eh, it doesn't seem that exciting. But, but recognize this, that whenever Israel wants to visually depict God, what do they make? They make a calf. Because to them, in that day, the, the greatest vision of what God is like is a young bull. And now you have young bull, king of Moab. He feels almost godlike in his title and in his presence. And that's probably how Moab would have felt about him because he was so successful. That seems to be how he thinks of himself. And as they, as, as Moab comes, they, they, they gather, you know, Eglon smartly takes these other two nations, 
the Ammonites and the Amorites, and he says, let's come together, and they cross over the Jordan, and they just mow down the Israelite resistance, mile after mile. It's, it's like you hear sometimes when the Nazis are invading Poland and the resistance is nothing. That's how it must have felt like. They even end up taking a heavily defended city, and Israel is helpless, and they have nothing that they can do but surrender to Eglon, king of Moab. And he requires that they treat him essentially like a god, that they serve him, the same word that sometimes is translated worship, that they give him tribute, the same word that oftentimes is translated as, as offerings. He requires them to treat him as godlike, and it makes sense to them, and so that's what they do because it just feels inevitable. Now, this is how it would have felt in that moment. But I want us to notice that from the outset, there is a different note. There's a different story that we're told to understand is going on. Did you notice at the very beginning when it talks about how, how Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? It's not just Eglon, king of Moab, just went to town. He does. But what does it tell us right before? The Lord strengthened Eglon. Eglon wouldn't have recognized that. Israel probably didn't recognize that. But we're supposed to recognize there is another hidden reality that is going on. And in fact, that's going to be near the very heart of this whole passage. We should recognize again there's this double level of things that pervade this entire story that we begin to see here. And, and that actually continues for the very next part. Because like it's always the case whenever anyone treats as God something that is not God, it leads to utter misery. Eglon is requiring tribute, probably its livestock, probably its crops, to the point that Israel is experiencing starvation while Eglon is not. And so they are just hopeless. They are they're feeling overwhelmed, and it says they cry out. And we shouldn't understand this as a, oh my goodness, I've been sinful, I'm going to turn away from idolatry. It's not this thought-out repentance. This is the kind of cry that someone who's been addicted to gambling, who now has so much debt they have no hope and nowhere else to go, just say to their parents, could you please help me? That's the kind of cry that we have here. And, and remarkably, we're told that as they cry out to the Lord, God answers. It says, they cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer named Eden. But I want us to imagine what it was actually like in that moment. This is a prayer that no one in that moment would have recognized was being answered. Right? When Eden comes, there's not these great trumpets being sounded from the hills. Your deliverer is here. There's no sign in the sky. There's nothing. When people were crying out, all it would have felt like is just silence reading him, that it would have felt like God did not hear, but, but secretly we see God doing something hidden. He raises up for a deliverer, but it's, it is certainly not the deliverer that you would imagine, because we learn two things initially about Eden. One is he's a Benjamite, and you should know the only thing that Benjamin is known for in the book of Judges is that they're not able to defeat the armies that they're supposed to defeat. They are not good fighters. And what's more, well, he's disabled. I mean, where it says left-handed, literally it is, he is hindered in his right hand. Quite likely it's talking about some sort of deformity where he doesn't have much use of his right hand. This is the Savior that God raises up 
from a bad fighting group, someone who's disabled in his right hand? Is it anyone that no one is recognizing that God is answering prayer in this time? In fact, we're supposed to feel the irony. Verse 15 actually kind of really like leans in our attention to this hand. Because Benjamin, you know what Benjamin means? It means son of my right hand. So literally verse 15, when it talks about Ehud, it talks about Ehud, the son of Gerah, a son of the right hand, who was hindered in his right hand. Into his hand, the Israelites sent tribute for Eglon. We're recognizing that this is a guy who, from Israel's perspective, has really no use for farming because he's hindered in his right hand, so he might as well be the guy who brings the money and the food to Eglon. This is how everyone was viewing things. It was inevitable, except for Ehud. Ehud it seems to be the one person who sees what we're being invited to see. Because when he sees that he's being told to send tribute to Eglon, he sees an opportunity because Eglon to him is not this overwhelming, inevitable foe. So what does he do? It says, in his privacy, he forms a blade, about 12 inches long, double-sided. This is not a sword for sword fighting. This is for one thing. It is an assassin's dagger. Short enough that he can then bind it to his right thigh, a place that no one is going to look because right-handed people always keep their stuff on their left side. He is coming with, you might say, a second gift, a second more hidden gift for Eglon that no one else knows about. And so we see in verse 17, him and a group of people who are, are bringing the, the tribute along with Ehud, coming and finally entering into the presence of King Eglon, King of Moab. And it is quite an impressive sight. In fact, we are told in verse 17, as we begin to see things through the eyes of Ehud, that Eglon was a very fat man. Now to us, we hear that and we laugh immediately, but we should recognize that in that day, someone who like him, who probably as he was sitting on his throne, had a gut that was just ridiculously huge, like rolls upon rolls upon rolls of fat. For him, he wouldn't be embarrassed about that. It was a sign of greatness because only the really powerful could eat as much as he could eat. Only the really powerful could demand tribute in such a way so that he could eat without any worry about starving. It was a sign to him of strength. And yet, there is something going on here, a little bit of a double play, a word, a word play. You notice that at the end of verse 17, as Ehud is seeing Eglon, it's no longer Eglon the king of Moab, but just Eglon, a fat man. And remember, Eglon it means calf. So everyone else might see him as the proud and mighty bull godlike, but you get the sense that Ehud sees him as something different, as a fattened cow ready for the slaughter. But in the moment, nothing interesting is happening. This is not the moment for Ehud to hatch his plot. They bring the tribute. Eglon receives it, feeling even more confident and proud of himself, and then they walk back. And at a certain point, when they get kind of like to the boundary marker between Israel and Moab, Ehud sends the rest of the people away, and he walks back. And, and you can imagine, he enters kind of to the gateway. The soldiers recognize him. They've seen him before, and to, him, to them, he's utterly harmless. I mean, he's, he's that Israelite cripple. And so they just, without much thinking, they bring him up the stairway into what's called the cool roof chamber, which likely meant that it was an area where they could feel the breezes 
just off the Jordan River. This is a place of wealth and luxury. And he is ushered into the presence of Eglon, king of Moab, who is seated on his throne. And in everything in that moment, is a sign of power. Like we can imagine as he's seated on his throne in this wealthy area with, with even the luxury of luxuries, there's a second floor latrine in the background that he alone can use. But not only that, you have servants that are surrounding him. You probably have the general of his army ready to take orders and other bodyguards all around him. And here you have just little old Ehud who can't even use his right hand. In that moment, the entire world who knows about what's going on has pretty much a shared opinion. The people of Israel think this is just going to be the routine sending of tribute of no significance whatsoever. The same thing will happen. It's been happening for 18 years. It's going to continue to happen because there is no stopping Eglon. The, the, the people of Moab that were there, the servants and, and the soldiers, as they relish the fact that they have been so strong, as they look at their mighty king, they feel invulnerable. And Eglon feels godlike, and he looks at Ehud, and he is proud of himself for being so much greater and stronger than that little old person. And Ehud is the one person in the world who sees things differently. And so in that moment, he, he says, as, as Ehud probably is curious, why, Eglon is curious, why is Ehud back? And, and, and Ehud says, I have a secret message for you, okay? And, and, and there's this wordplay in the Hebrew, secret message could just as easily be translated a hidden thing. But Eglon thinks nothing of it. This is juicy, this is exciting. And of course, if it's a secret, you, know, you don't want anyone else to hear it because Maybe he's wanting to portray his people. Maybe there's more power involved. So, so Eglon sends all of his bodyguards and everyone else out of the room. And you can imagine the guards kind of going, this is odd, this is fun. Well, you know, this guy's not going to do anything. So, so they all leave. And now Ehud, it says, he takes a few steps closer. And he says a little bit more. It's like, I have a word from God. And, and Eglon is just like, he can't restrain himself. He's so excited to hear this word that will flatter him and tell him how great he is. And so he kind of stands up and conveniently stretching out his belly. And he's just kind of like ready to receive what he has for him. And in a moment, the word of God is given to him in full. Ehud, who has probably practiced this a thousand times in one motion, moves under the robe with his left hand, grabs the dagger from his right thigh, and then stabs him in the gut and drives it as far as he possibly can so that it is swallowed up completely and the fat goes over the dagger. You might say Eglon entirely absorbed the word of God in that moment. And you might also say the truth came out. <laughs> to use what the NIV says, it says his bowels loosened. In this final moment of his life, Eglon, king of Moab, the great bull, soiled himself. And the truth was revealed to him. The spell was broken. And what he thought was true of himself, of his greatness, of his power, was revealed that he 
was nothing more than a mere mortal whose, whose poop stinks like every other man's. But the word needs to go forward. There's more revelation to take place. And so Ehud has to escape. And, and thankfully, he has a plan. So we're told that he then goes to the doors where the servants are on the other side. He locks them. He finds a different escape route. Some commentators suggest that there's probably a window in the latrine that he climbs down from knowing that no one is likely to want to be below that. And so he finds a way where he can kind of just like casually walk out, maybe whistling as he goes by the gate and the soldiers don't think anything of it. And, and yet, it's not yet time for safety for him. You know, in any moment, if, if the dead Eglon is discovered, all it will take is a couple soldiers on horseback, and, and Ehud will never be able to deliver the message to his people. But thankfully, Ehud, this is where the genius of the plan is. The doors are locked, remember. And, and you know the person who's writing the story is really enjoying the scene, because it kind of gives us this like blow by blow where we're supposed to just kind of imagine the servants as they're waiting by the door after it's been shut for them, and they're wondering what they're supposed to do next. So it's been a few minutes that he's had this secret meeting, and, and, and Eglon hasn't opened the door, which is a little weird, so at a certain point, they kind of come to the door, and they, they turn the knob, and they find that it's locked. And then they... <laughs> They, they notice something. I mean, do you notice actually uh, the way that it describes what, what they say, where it says, surely he is relieving himself. I mean, why would they say the, the, the stench is so strong? I'm like, this has got to be what's going on. And so I'm like, okay, all right. So then the servants just kind of wait longer. And they wait. And they wait. I mean, the, the, the detail says that they waited until they were embarrassed. I mean, just imagine the servants having the conversation. How long is the king going to take? Should, should we go in? You want to interrupt him? No, no, no. Like 10 minutes later. This is, this is really, really weird. And so finally it says that they... When he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them. Literally, there on the ground lying, their Lord lay dead. Isn't that a powerful statement? Their Lord lay dead. Their, their king that they invested all of their hope in, the one who they thought was this invulnerable power they see him as nothing now but a mortal and very stinky man. And meanwhile, as they're coming to this revelation, Ehud has escaped. He is now much further away. He has now actually gone eventually to the place right surrounded by the villages of the people that he is serving. And it says he takes out his trumpet. And, and literally it says, and he thrust it. And now he blew it. But the idea is in the same way that he pushed the dagger to show truth, now is the second movement where once again he is, he is bringing forth the word of God. This time not for destruction, but for healing. And here is what he says. He, he, he declares to them, follow after me. There, there are people who probably heard the trumpet and are wondering what in the world is going on because nothing interesting was scheduled to happen today. This was just a normal day. But people hear the trumpet and they come and he says to them, follow after me. For the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. 
What a ridiculous, what an extraordinary thing to have heard. I've no doubt he then described blow by blow what happens to Eglon, king of Moab. And, and how confused at first they would have been, first by the fact that this invulnerable, godlike king was destroyed, but then that Ehud, Ehud was their savior? That is, a, a man with no appearance to recommend him was the one who brought salvation? And then, and then moving from that to realize, wait a second, God is the one who has done this? God heard our prayers. God hasn't forgotten us. God has given our enemy into our hand. And somehow that message had this, this galvanizing, freeing effect because we're told that in mass, the people of Israel come and they actually go past where the Moabite camp was. They go to the Jordan River to make sure that they cut off the escape. And then having taken those forts, then they move back towards, Moab, towards that Moabite encampment and they utterly decimate them. So there is no one remaining. They get complete and utter victory. And for 80 years, they enjoy rest. They live happily ever, well not ever after, they live happily for the next 80 years. There's this song that we've sent, we sing sometimes, Psalm 126, where it talks about when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, it was like a dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Can you imagine how in the space of just a few days to go from slavery and despair and hopelessness, convinced that your life was nothing more than a tragedy, and suddenly a few days later and you're free and you have hope before you and you realize it's actually a comedy? That you actually can laugh at your enemy because God has given him into your hands and you can enjoy victory and rest? Your mouth would have been filled with laughter. And indeed, I suspect that laughter is near the very heart of what this passage is about. Because when we see things rightly, we are invited to join in. To be clear, what I'm not saying in this moment is that somehow evil is itself something to laugh you know, like, evil is not a laughing matter, right? You know, it wasn't a laughing matter for the people of Israel when they were persecuted, when they were crushed, when they were idolaters, when they experienced starvation. And neither is it something that's in itself a laughing matter when we find ourselves succumbing to temptation, when we feel defeated, when we feel overwhelmed, when we feel stuck. On our own, evil is very real and very powerful, and it's so easy to despair over. But when we talk about evil, setting itself against God, that is a joke. When we talk about evil and the forces of evil, deciding that they're gonna somehow stand in the way of what God is seeking to do and trying to stop him, that, that the spiritual powers will somehow try to stop God from rescuing this world and his people, that Satan and his forces are going to do their best to separate us from the love of God that, that is ridiculous. In fact, the Psalms tell us that as, as all the powers conspire against the Lord and his anointed one, do you know what God does as he looks on their efforts? He laughs. 
Because when he sees all that looks so strong and great to us, he sees nothing more than a fat cow ready to be slaughtered. And this was really the point of God sending Ehud, to, to bring people out of the spell and to see the reality that with God they do not need to be afraid. God has sensed even more, an even more powerful and effective word than Ehud since then. One who also was born in weakness, who was born as a peasant, right? Who was rejected by his people, who was utterly humiliated on the cross. Jesus does not look like the kind of savior you would expect to save his people. But on the cross, he took a dagger and he drew, drove it into the very heart of sin and Satan and death itself. And when Jesus rises again, what does he say? Follow after me, for God has given your enemy into your hand. Follow after me, for what you thought was a tragedy, what you thought was a defeat, is actually victory. Follow after me, because all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Follow unto me, because we win. Now, this is, this is what, I, what, I, what I'm not trying to tell us this morning is that with God on your side, you'll never experience failure. With God on your side, whenever you set out to do, wherever you seek to change, you will experience nothing but victory. There will be no struggle. You know that's not true. I know that's not true. And God certainly does not promise that. But here's what God does say. God says that as we face temptation, demonic attack, oppression, tragedy, overwhelming odds from our perspective, nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And what's more, as we face these things, we should recognize that the very same God who responded to the sin-addicted people by sending a Savior has for us sent His very own Son, Have you ever thought about just the gravity of that? That the Father who loves His Son beyond measure gave His Son for you out of love. And that the God who loves you that deeply will not stop halfway, but will do everything it takes to make you holy His and holy like Jesus. Do you understand what that means? Romans says, here's what it means. It means in Christ you are completely victorious. In Christ you have already won and you are winning. Here's what that means. It means that the one who is in you is more powerful than the one that is in the world. So even as we seek to grow and change, yes, yes, there are times that we will experience frustration. Yes, we will experience failure. But we have one who is at work in us, which means as we seek to repent, you and I will change. You and I who belong to Jesus will become more loving, more hopeful, more faithful, because God is at work in us, and before him any opposition is nothing more On the last day when Christ returns, there will be so many things we're amazed by, but here are two things that I think we will be surprised by, even if we understand in our heads. First, we will come to realize that all that we were afraid of, all that seems so big, is but a 
spot compared to the entire sunlight and glory of God's power, it's nothing in comparison. And secondly, we will have to realize that what we've talked about all our life for the love of God, which we hold on to, but at times we feel so small, is so much bigger than we can possibly imagine. And when we see that, you and I will laugh. And in the meantime, as we seek to move towards what God has called us to, let us continue to strive. Let us continue to turn to him to ask for help. Let's even use this time right now as we engage in the battle, not defeated but hopeful, acknowledging before God our sin, asking him for help, knowing that he is the one who loves us and is the one at work in us. Let's, let's spend some time in some ways doing battle by praying and confessing and asking for help right now. And I'll lead us in prayer in a couple minutes.